Hey Amarillo, my name is Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. The presenting sponsor of this episode is ROI Online. Most business leaders struggle with how to transition from traditional marketing into modern marketing. ROI Online has a team of experts that makes it easy. They help you make a plan and then do most of the work and set you up for success. ROI can guide you to success at ROIOnline.com. Today's guest is Jonathan Baker, a novelist, entrepreneur, copywriter, and High Plains Public Radio personality. And he's also a former comedian, so that's fun. Uh, Baker lives in Canyon, and more than almost anyone I know, he's put a huge amount of thought into the character of the Texas Panhandle and why he lives here. And that's part of his story. That's also why I wanted to feature him for the first episode of 2018. Now, I I think of this podcast as a form of journalism, uh, but also as a medium for telling positive stories about Amarillo and about the surrounding area. I love this area, and I'm optimistic about our future here, and you'll probably have noticed that almost all of my guests feel the same way. But just like a diet filled with cake and ice cream isn't always healthy in the long term, I think it's important to listen to a diverse set of voices and opinions. I think sometimes we need you know, to be challenged. We need some salad and some fiber in our diet. Um, and I think Baker is an excellent person to offer that kind of challenge. As he says in our interview, he loves the Texas Panhandle, but it's not all unicorns and sunsets here. Like, like a family member offering a little tough love to a kid who might be headed down the wrong path, uh, Baker thinks we can do better. And, and so to let you behind the curtain a little bit, Baker and I talked after the interview because he was worried he came off as a little too grouchy. I told him not to worry about it. Um, I, I think he was just grumpy enough. This is, this is the first week of 2018. Uh, people are making individual New Year's resolutions, and I think maybe his insights into this area into the people who live here, uh, the good things and the bad things, I think those can point us in the direction we needed to be that that we need to be heading. So, happy new year! Welcome to 2018. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and here's Jonathan Baker. Okay, today's guest is Jonathan Baker. Uh, Baker, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jason. So I um, I first met you, I guess, uh, a year or two ago. Uh, you're a writer. I'm a writer. We, right. we both do kind of copywriting, and, and that's how we know each other. But uh, I don't know if I told you this. Before we met, I had read your essay uh, in Colloquium about moving to West Texas from New York. I maybe didn't, yeah, I didn't know A you. year or two yeah. ahead of that. So I was like, oh, this is the essay guy. Yeah, right. Uh, so I, but, but before we talk about, though, I just kind of want to hear your story. Tell me what kind of your, your career path up to this point, uh, yeah. what you do now here in Amarillo, and sort of how you got here. Sure. Um, so, oh man, it's a, it's a long story. I was uh, born in Amarillo, kind of raised in Canyon. I was a bookish, bookish West Texas kid, so I wasn't very popular around here. Um, I didn't have a lot of friends, but I had a lot of books, and uh, uh, I moved to Austin to go to this sort of fancy prep school when I was in seventh grade which I was then kicked out of. <laughs> and then I had this wild uh, teenage years in Austin. Like I was, I was a hellion. It was terrible. I don't want to, it, it was awful. But um, eventually I became a stand-up comic. I was a touring comedian for years. And I found my way, uh, like so many people in the panhandle do, I found myself moving back here 
over and over and over again. But I was eventually a stand-up comic based in Amarillo. Uh, and Amarillo was a good base because I could make it to Little Rock or Oklahoma City or Austin or Dallas or Tucson or uh, Albuquerque, Denver. There are so many places that I could make within, you know, I could leave early in the morning and make it there to do shows in the evening. So, um, so I was drinking a lot in those years, a lot. As started, comics do. As right? comics do. But I started drinking when I was 14, like around that seventh grade, like when the wheels came off when I moved to Austin. So um, I had a son when I was 27, um, who is now my world, you know, and uh, I realized I didn't want to be that guy anymore. You know, I didn't want to be the drunk guy. I didn't want to be on the road all the time. I didn't want to be that kind of father. So I quit drinking. I quit comedy because I couldn't do comedy without drinking. Uh, and I went back to school. I went to WT and I, I had some, a bunch of credits from when I was young because I was a mess and I would like sign up for school at like Austin Community College or someplace. And then I, and then I wouldn't show up to class because I was hungover like every other 22-year-old. And then I would drop out. So I had all these like random credits. And I was like, okay, I'll just get a, a general studies degree at, at WT and I'll just be done. And I'll have a degree finally, right? So my first class I took was uh, American Literature with Bonnie McDonald. And I don't know if you're going to interview uh, her, but she's the she's the coolest person I've ever met. Like she's my hero. She's amazing. And, uh, after a couple of weeks of class, she said, you need to change your major. You're an English major. And I said, I, I am, <laughs> but I'd always been reading like always. I was always reading in bars and comedy club green rooms. I was like, you know, in the green room with Henry James or like, you know, Moby Dick or whatever. As comics do. Well, no, no, but, <laughs> but, uh, but Bonnie was like, you're, this is what you were supposed to be doing. You know, she's like, you're, so well read you need to be doing this and i said okay and this was great because i just quit drinking and i was like this gives me a purpose right there's all this like addiction theory that's coming out now and they're starting there's some people are starting they don't so much think of dis, uh, alcoholism as a dece- disease they think it now think of it now as like a lack of hope or a lack of meaning you know and so this gave me meaning because this brilliant woman with a phd from yale said this is what you're supposed to be doing so I threw myself into school, and I graduated summa cum laude from um, WT with a four-point. I got into Columbia University and the University of Chicago, a couple of other schools. And I went to the University of Scott, uh, Chicago and got a master's in American literature, in humanities, actually, technically. And um, from there, I this is a long story, I know, but I, I went and uh, started interning at a literary agency on Michigan Avenue, in Chicago, you know, my son was always here and he would come and visit me for like long periods in Chicago. I was trying to get him to come live with me. And, uh, so there was this sort of back and forth, but I, I figured there was a way I could get my son to New York if I went to New York. So I did, I went to New York with a thousand dollars and a guitar and I slept on a couch for two months and I finally scrapped uh, together an internship. I was working at a, uh, a bookstore. And uh, this is the second time I'd lived in New York, by the way. I also lived in Chicago a couple of different times. But anyway, so uh, I finally worked my way up to becoming the assistant to the editor-in-chief at W.W. Norton & Company, which is this storied old publishing house. And my head was spinning because three years previous, uh, I hadn't even had an undergrad degree. I was just like this sort of drunk comic in West Texas, you know. And now here I was working on Pulitzer winners and National Book Award nominees and Man Booker Prize nominees and like talking uh, with authors, you know, like working on Larry McMurtry's books and people like that, like Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, and I'm like, what, 
where am I? Like, how did this happen? You know? And that's one thing that people, I think, don't tell people in the Texas panhandle is there are ways out. It seems like there aren't because it's so empty out here. And you go to the, uh, you know, the county line or the city limits and you look out and you're like, there's no way to get anywhere from here, but you can, you know, uh, because I did, uh, and in only three years. And it was just from applying myself from not quitting. I know people say that all the time, but it's true. It's like, it's not like I'm, you know, smarter than everybody else or something like that. It was just like, you know, when I was at WT, people would miss classes all the time. They didn't do the reading. I did the reading. I went to class. It wasn't that, and I would get A's, you know? So, so how long were you in New York? I was there for mm, three years. Okay. And, uh, my son came and lived with me for a while and I was making $32,000 in publishing, trying to live in New York city with a son, single dad. And it was impossible. Um, I finally, I sent my son home back to his mom and I came back shortly thereafter, uh, quit my job. And, um, um, I should say that I always wanted to be a writer, you know, uh, even when I was a kid, I was like, I want to be a stand-up comic or a writer. I did the stand-up comic thing. And I was like, but I, I saw that writer thing, like, churning within me. So the day after I graduated from grad school, I started a novel. And I wrote two novels in the period when I was working uh, in publishing. Um, I wrote on the subway and I wrote in cafes at lunch and I wrote on the bus back to New Jersey where I was living with my son. And I sometimes snuck paragraphs here and there at my desk at Norton. Um, But I managed it through accretion, you know, like I managed to write a couple of novels. And I was like, this is what I want to be doing, not working on other people's books, working on my own books. And so, um, yeah, I quit my job. And I was like, I've been thinking of Canyon, you know, like Canyon creeps into my consciousness, you know, when I'm away. It's that emptiness, you know, it's like, I love New York. Like anybody... Anybody who knows me will tell you that I'm, I'm obsessed with New York City. But I'm also, I love the emptiness of the Texas Panhandle. And so I was like, look, I'm going to move back, find a tiny, tiny little place and uh, start writing. And that's what I did, you know. And uh, so I'm here now. I've written four novels, but I'm now completely overhauling slash rewriting my fourth novel, which is a crime novel set in the Texas Panhandle. It's called Cradle Song. It's a retelling of the biblical Christmas story in a rural noir crime setting about an illegal immigrant Mexican girl who gives birth to, uh, she's on the run from a drug cartel and she gives birth to a baby in a barn out in the middle of the Texas panhandle. So during a blizzard. So, and do you, do you have interest from publishers on that? I mean, do you have, well, I have an agent, um, and she is interested in the idea and, uh, yeah, it's always kind of an awkward conversation because they're like, where can I, people are like, where can I buy your books? And I'm like, I haven't sent them in. I haven't, I haven't written a book that I feel like I want to walk into Barnes and Noble and see sitting on the shelf there. And I know I have it in me and I know it's coming soon, but here's the thing people don't know about publishing. Um, if you write good books, you will be published eventually. This is true. Like, the door can't be closed forever if you're producing quality. People also don't realize, so many people don't realize, how hard it is to write a book, especially a crime novel. To me, I think a crime novel is harder than uh, than a literary novel because you have to hold people's attention. Yeah. <laughs> because you have to entertain people who don't necessarily read books all the time. And um, I love literary novels. Like, you know, I have uh, two degrees in, you know, literature. But, man, having to, like, hold that tension for 200 or 300 pages, that's really hard. So I'm almost there, but 
all the pieces aren't quite fitting together yet. And I think I've got it this time, but we'll see. You and know? then in the meantime, you do some uh, copywriting. You do I some write copy. Stuff. I write a lot of advertisements for. I just wrote one for Verizon last week. I'm writing today. I was working on a thing for Esquire magazine called the Esquire Collective, and it's like a, a group of bloggers from around the country who are writing for Esquire. Yeah, I write ads for a lot of like menswear, like high end fashion, and then like I've done stuff for like Porsche and uh, Michelin and Brooks Brothers and that kind of. Stuff. So, Plus, you contribute to High yeah, Plains Public Radio. Yeah, I'm on the radio every day uh, reading the news uh, about the area, which is great because I like to write stories about this area. And so I, I'm actually paid to scour, you know, Oklahoma Watch and the Amarillo.com and like, you know, the Garden City Telegram and all these newspapers. And so I know uh, what's going on in the oil industry. I know what's going on in the cattle industry and all this kind of stuff, which is really, I'm fascinated by that stuff, especially oil. It's such this weird culture and I love it. Like I, so, so yeah, I'm on the radio every day writing stories that I or reading stories that I write, um, daily about the region of it, of interest to local listeners. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about moving back. Um, because you, you wrote an essay for, uh, colloquium, magazine, uh, sort of a little literary magazine yeah, at the University Chicago. of Chicago, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was about how how you came to move back or move to Canyon from New York City and how these two places that, that seem totally different had a lot of similarities. Right. And it sort of went viral. I mean, I, I don't know how- it did. How I ran across it, but somebody you know linked it on Facebook said this is exactly right. You know, I still have people um, years later come up to me and say you're, you're you're the guy that wrote that essay. It's the strangest thing, you know. A lot of it, I think, is people. How do I put this nicely? There's a lot of BS that goes on about this area. Like people don't talk about this area truthfully, and so when somebody does, it feels like I people felt like I was talking to them because so it's so rare that someone go, goes, oh, this guy knows exactly what it's like to be on the high plains. And he's not like talking about sunsets and cowboys and whatever, you know, I mean, all that stuff's fine, but like there are real realities to living within this culture, especially as a creative person, it can be extremely isolating, but there's also a beauty here that draws um, creative people to it. And then when they get here, they feel isolated and ostracized in a lot of ways. And so I really, um, without intending to, tapped into something that r people really needed to hear, I feel like. And I had so many people, strangers, messaging me on Facebook saying, um, I've never felt so read something that felt so true about this place, which felt great, you know. But um, a lot of it, again, was Bonnie McDonald and the my professors at WT and talking about the American West for years and reading about the American West, studying the American West and just thinking about it. And when you read like Angle of Repose or something like that, and then you're arguing against it in your head. And I, I concocted all these theories or beliefs about this place. And I kind of just spewed them all out onto into that essay, and uh, and people reacted to yeah, it. Yeah, and, and I guess one of the main themes of of that essay was that this area is is a kind of hell. Yeah, but you you love it here. Yeah, I mean, the the essay is called "It's Hell and I Like It," and that is a direct quote from Georgia O'Keeffe, who lived in Canyon, who lived like three blocks from where we're sitting right now, and uh, she she wrote. Um, a letter back to uh, William Stieglitz, her husband in New York, saying, 
if I could just get back to New York sometimes, then I think I could make a life in Canyon. Uh, you know, it's windy and it's empty, but it's hell and it's hell, but I like it, you know? And I think so many of us feel, feel that way about this place. It's like, especially you go out on a really windy day and it's like, you feel like you're going to get blown into the next county and you're like, what am I doing here? What is anyone doing here? It's like that, uh, James McMurtry song level land where the mm. first line is, uh, Flatter than a tabletop makes you wonder why they stopped here. Lag wagon must have lost a wheel or they lacked ambition one. You know, it's like, it's funny how so many of the great songs about this area are about leaving it or not liking it. Or uh, like Ryan Colwell's song, Amarillo, which is like, uh, Amarillo is just a waste of time. But he's saying that other people say that, you know, but uh, it's a love, it's a love letter to this area. His whole album why do you why do you think it's isolating for a creative person to live here? Because you know, Amarillo is known that the people I think would describe uh, themselves as as hardworking, as welcoming, as friendly. Mm -hmm. um, but that hardworking aspect it doesn't always fit well with someone who, let's say, is is a writer or right. maybe is a musician or maybe mm -hmm. a painter. I mean, there are pockets of that, but yeah. a lot of those people tend to take off and go somewhere else mm -hmm. so they can be successful. Why Why do you think that is? Okay, well, let's get into it, I guess. Like, let's, uh, the main theory that I put forth in that essay is that the visibility in this area, the flatness, means that you are constantly on display. Everyone is constantly on display. And it leads to an urge in people to shave off anything that's pointing out in their personality, to try to look like the guy that's standing next to you. In the essay, I talk about flying from New York City to Amarillo and how I always have this experience in the Dallas airport or the Houston airport where when I get off the plane from New York, everybody, you know, there's like purple mohawks and there's like an, an old Indian woman and there's like, you know, there's just every kind of person. And then you walk to the Amarillo gate and you know you're at the Amarillo gate immediately because everybody's wearing the same Wranglers and the same shirt and they're all having the same conversation about golf or the Dallas Cowboys or whatever, you know, and I'm, I'm being unfair. Like this is a blanket, but there, there is a sameness here to the architecture and to the people, to the conversations, to the beliefs um, that I think, I'm not sure that it's a like, you know, totally like the landscape is totally responsible for that. But I do think that landscape affects the way we interact and behave. And I think that in New York City, where you can't see the horizon, where you can't see far at all, usually, um, there's this blocked sort of vision or view where you don't feel like you're on display. You feel sort of hugged by the city. I think that that leads, to, for me, to a sense of comfort. A lot of people in West Texas would say, you're crazy, you go to New York City and you feel like comfortable. And I wouldn't say that I feel comfortable, I would say that I feel a pleasing sense of discomfort there. And that sense of discomfort is possibility. It's the possibility that any new experience could come around the corner at any moment. I don't sense that in Amarillo. I see the same people every day, have the same kinds of conversations, and there's a lack of surprise here. And I think it's a damn shame because it doesn't have to be that way. It's not like anyone makes a conscious decision. We're all going to be the same, but it flies in the face of, of who we are as Westerners, as Western Americans, you know? Like, this is supposed to be the land of reinvention. This is supposed to be the land of independence and you know, there's no one more independent than the sort of solitary cowboy out on the plains or the, uh, you know, the Comanche warrior or whatever. But, you know, what we've done, we've taken, we took this land from the Comanches in a, in a hostile fashion. 
uh, although there was plenty of hostility on their side uh, too. But uh, the Comanches knew how to live on this land more better than anyone who's ever lived on this land because they were mobile and because they they were almost like the wind. And this is the windiest place in America. The Amarillo is the windiest city in America. Uh, Rochester, Minnesota is second, by the way. But my point is um, we've taken this land from the Comanche and what have we done with it? You know, we built track ho- tract housing on it and we built uh, strip malls and uh, we've set up Applebee's and Chili's. We might as well be in the suburbs of Omaha, you know, like what have we done to honor this land that we are living in? And I think that's true worldwide, like globalization and stuff like that. And when, you know, when wind turbines go up, it, it decreases the sense of emptiness and openness. And the, there's a lot of factors, but I would say that architecturally, socially, we don't honor this place. Take the politics, for example, like that bathroom bill. Like, I don't want to get too into politics, but it's crazy to me that in the land of reinvention, the American West, we're bothered by someone saying, I don't want to be this. I want to be that. That is what the American West was built on. The place where, uh, you know, Davy Crockett was loathed in Tennessee and he comes to Texas and becomes a hero and hangs out with Indians and gets drunk every day. And now we have statues of him, you know, (laughs) like why did, when did we start caring so much what other people did or why, whether they weren't fitting some kind of standard, when did it shift from celebrating like this sort of maverick independence to like trying to stamp it out? like viciously stamp it out. And that reveals itself in the shift in, say, architecture. You go to Wolflin or the neighborhood around Amarillo College and you see, you know, an Art Modern house across the street from some Spanish colonial thing. And they all have these like bright, clever little personalities, these houses, you know. Then you go to Southwest Amarillo. It's this soul-crushing sameness, the same house over and over again. You're like, how do people, it's a good thing they put numbers on them, you know, because otherwise you'd never remember which house was yours. But that's a, that's a problem with the suburbs almost anywhere. Though. Almost anywhere. I agree. And so that, to be fair, I'm talking about issues that are true across, I would not say across America, although sort of like... It is true in Manhattan. I was in Portland, Maine all last week, and there is a sort of corporatization that's happening there, but not like this. It's really in red state America that it's really taken hold, and I'm not sure what that mass psychology is, but you're right. It's not It's not a panhandle phenomenon, but it sticks in my craw more in the panhandle because it, to my mind, flies so much in the face of who we are or who we should be as people. This is a place where... You know, in the eighteen in eighteen ninety, let's say, um, you could be killed by tornadoes or Comanche raids or flash flooding or anything. You needed community, you know, and we still have that sort of community to a point. But if there's anyone who like displays that sort of Western independence, we we ostracize them. And this isn't a place where you should be sending people out into the cold, into the wind, you know, like this is a dangerous place to be thinking like that, you know. But you still came back, you know, and, and I've heard stories from from other people, uh, it seems lately, people who went out to make it in New York or even to Dallas in some place and found success there, but ultimately weren't fulfilled by what they were doing and ended up back here. And yeah. I, I wonder, you know, if... If there is a bit of that frustration, you know, what is the factor that helps you overcome that frustration and still make a life here? Yeah. Well, I should say that all of any anytime you hear criticism of the Texas panhandle in my voice, it comes from a place of love. Like this is like like anyone talking about a family member who they feel like has sort of like 
isn't loving them back enough. You know what I mean? I'm like, ah, you know, like I've, I've given so much of my life to this place and, um, it's been good to me. I'm not, you know, I'm not like trying to be unfair, but uh, well, to answer your question, I would say the emptiness is what brought me back here. Like it's, it's not, it's not the culture in Amarillo or something like that. It's what happens when I drive to the, to the, uh, edge of town and look out, you know, it's that sense of being, uh, the only person in the world, which is, uh, a similar sense to what I feel in New York, which is a sense of being the only person in the world. Um, it's like that, you know, just, the only living boy in New York. Yeah, or whatever. it's just a different kind of isolation. It's a different kind of isolation. You can go out and stand, you know, like in a field near uh, Panhandle or Tulia or something, and you're just like, I can't see anyone else. Therefore, I can't be seen. And that's so comforting to me for whatever reason, because, uh, you know, for psychological reasons, you know, like I was saying earlier, I was like a bookish kid and I was, you know, bullied and whatever. And maybe I want to feel that sort of comforting aloneness. But I feel it here and I feel it in New York. So I love emptiness or I love like teeming throngs. I don't know for whatever reason. So you came back here ostensibly to, to spend time with your son. I, I know that was a driving factor. And, yeah. you know, one of the projects you've been working on uh, is about him. And it's a, it's mm. a kind of a new book uh, project that started from just, I guess, an idea you had that you yeah. wanted to teach your son, you know, how, how to be a man, the, the things read, he needed to learn. I'd read a, uh, a list online of things that every man should know how to do. And I was like, you know, it just popped into my head one day when I was writing in a coffee shop in Amarillo. And I thought, I thought I should, my son is like, you know, he's 13 now. I should teach him this stuff. So I went and found that list. Then I found another list. And then I added some stuff that I felt was missing from both lists. Then I posted it on my Facebook and I said, I want to teach my son to do all these things. And then all these people started going, what about this? What about that? And somebody said, what about teaching him about consent? And I was like, of course, absolutely. Like, why? Why did I forget that? So I put consent on there, you know, you know, teaching him about birth control, how to pay his taxes. There's stuff like that. But there's also like how to shoot a gun, how to shoot how a to gun, build a fire, how to exactly. Yeah. Or how to fix a roof or how to tie a necktie. I've had people say, you know, this seems sexist, you know, like, but the reality is I'm a dad uh, and I have a son. So it's kind of in, in that personal way. It's our journey. But it's also unabashedly a book or a project for people with sons. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think men have been broken for a long time, for centuries, really, but especially since uh, World War I, um, the lost generation, that sort of thing, where we don't know our place in the world. And we feel sort of like, this is a book for for dads like me, too, because I was never taught to shoot a gun. I was never taught to change my oil. I was never, you know, taught to build a fire in the woods. And that, I think, in the back of your mind can lead to a sort of sense of being lost in the world, you know, because we evolutionarily are supposed to be protectors. But so many men in America, we don't feel like protectors. You know, I don't feel like a protector. Like if, if a bear attacks, I don't know what the hell to do. You know, and my girl is standing there. I'm like, you know, I'm just gonna like, I'm going to turn tail, you know, but, but now I'm going to know and I'm going to teach my son and we're going to know, and we're going to be protectors and there's nothing wrong with that, you know? So what to do when a bear attacks is, is one of the things, okay. is one of the things. Good. Yeah. I was worried. That... Yeah. And you know, but it's not all, you know, it's not all nature stuff. There's how to hang a shelf. And then there's a lot of like, know the ancient classics. I'm this week, I'm teaching my son about, uh, the Iliad. You know, we did or the Odyssey. We did the Iliad. How does he respond to that? Not, Less enthusiastically he's not than as shooting a, guns. He would rather or? learn to throw a hatchet, let's okay. say, than learn about the Odyssey. But 
this is a, um, the project is a kind of an, it takes a village idea. So I'm going to have Daniel Bloom, who's a philosophy professor at WT, talk to my son about Homer and about the ancient Greeks. You know, last week we were, my son and I were in Dallas and I know a magician down there. And one of the things is uh, no one good magic trick. And so I had this magician meet with my son and teach him a good magic trick. So it's a five-year project. We have to complete four tasks per month to finish on time. We're lagging a little behind, but we can catch up. But some of them, like learn a language, are going to take five years, you know. But some of them are like, will take five minutes, you know, or an hour, like fix, you know, fix a leaky faucet or whatever. I know but, you've uh, you've discussed the project with your agent. Do you have any uh, any discussions with publishers at this point, or is it still... I have friends... We're too early in into publishing. the five years. You know, I was in New York last month, I think, and I had dinner with some... <laughs> some publishing friends and they were all just like, so who's your agent? They were all just like, everybody's so into this idea. Like they love it so much, but it's funny because I didn't think it was a book until my agent saw it on Facebook and said, that's a book. Call me. That shows you what kind of business sense I have and (laughs) how much I belong in publishing. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, uh, we've got a website that should be up and running this week. It's to buildaman.com. And, uh, the name is supposed to echo the Jack London story to build a fire. Uh, which I could go into, but I won't. Can we uh, follow, follow your progress as yeah. as you mark things? Yeah, off and the there's list? also uh, there's an Instagram at to build a man. You know, I'm writing these little essays that are just like 500 word essays about each sort of task and where we're at. I'm going to have some guest bloggers on there, but this is a community effort, and I it's not about like hey look what this guy's doing with his son. This is about hey parents of who have sons, moms and dads, like let's all get together and sort of try to reclaim how. Uh, we can teach our sons to be strong and kind and noble and skilled in the world and to feel like uh, like protectors and like they can handle any situation that's thrown at them. You know, and if they can quote a sonnet too, I mean, that's cool. You know, <laughs> like, right? This episode is brought to you by ROI Online, an internet marketing agency. Now, as, as a writer, I know exactly how challenging it can be to come up with a good story that sells. Baker talked about that uh, in the interview just now, and I can't imagine how hard that must be for a business owner or for a marketing director, someone who has a million other tasks to juggle. So what I like about ROI Online is that they are much more than a marketing agency. They're more than a business consultant. They help you tell your story. They're your partner. They're your teammates. They're, they're like your ghostwriter. They'll do the heavy lifting, but you and your business get all the credit. And what's even better is that in addition to helping businesses succeed by shaping their marketing, ROI also influences your company culture. So drop by for a chat or meet them for a happy hour, and you'll soon discover their culture is contagious. Follow ROI on Instagram and Facebook, or learn more by checking them out at ROIOnline.com. ROI Online, leading the modern marketing movement. Okay, we're back with uh, Jonathan Baker, and uh, Baker, this is the section of the podcast that I call Eight Straight. Okay. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions, sort of in a lightning round format. Whoa. Uh, they're very specific questions. I okay. want you to answer you know, with as much uh, honesty and forthrightness as, as you can manage. Okay. So, let's, let's start. What type of Amarillo weather do you love most? Blizzards. Seriously? Seriously. I love blizzards. I love winter. Uh, my latest novel is about a blizzard in, in the Texas Panhandle, but I love it when it gets really snowy and cold here. I love when uh, snow just completely blankets the Texas Panhandle and you are sort of out on the edge of town and it just looks like 
endless whiteness, a nemiety of whiteness. That's a grad school word, I guess. But it's it's like it's, there's this chapter in Moby Dick called the whiteness of the whale, and he very and famous chapter, very Moby famous Dick. chapter in that book where Melville talks about the, the sort of like the existentially terrifying nature of the of white. How when we see something that's just like like pale white, it reminds us of uh, the sort of emptiness of. Uh, within a certain <laughs> something. It's been a while since I read that chapter. And, you know, it's ultimately about the, the white whale and how his skin is, like, so unsettlingly white. There was another writer who wrote a book called The Home Place in the 1960s. Anyway, he, there was a great chapter in that book about uh, grain elevators as the Moby Dicks of the, of the Great Plains, you know, these things that seem to, like, emerge from the horizon, these, like, hulking beasts um i love grain elevators i love i love grain (laughs) i really love (laughs) silos like they're like these i i just appreciate that you went from blizzards to melville to grain elevators (laughs) in a single thought i could go on about grain elevators okay second question what's what's your all-time favorite local restaurant there's a place on amarillo boulevard called bangkok and no one ever goes there and it's not nice in there and it's open till like 1 a.m. And they had they used to have a stage and they played Tejano music in there. And but they have the best chicken green curry in the known universe. And it's like it's like way out there after you go over that bridge, like past the cattlemen's, like right at the edge of town. Far to the east. Though. Yeah, it's like it's like this forgotten pocket of Amarillo. And there's a place over there. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that I would say that's my all time favorite, but that pops to mind. Um, I love the burgers at Blue Sky. Like, I kind of crave them, but... What does Amarillo have too much of? Oh, man. Um, tract houses, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, strip malls. So I would say bad architecture. Like, architecture that doesn't serve the Texas panhandle and who and what we are. You know, maybe what Frank Lloyd Wright was on about with the prairie style, this sort of, like, long, swooping... Uh, cantilevered porches and things like that that feel like they feel like wind and they feel like flatness and they feel like openness and they're pleasing to look at and what we have here is so much manufactured stuff that looks like it could be anywhere in the world it doesn't feel of this place so there's too much of that junk like like let's go back to like good real architecture that makes us feel like oh i'm in the texas panhandle let's build more 50-foot cowboys actually just the one is good texas Texan Canyon, like my heart, my heart. Well, he, I that, love him. That leads to the second, or I guess the <laughs> the fourth question. What what does the area not have enough of? <laughs> uh, I would say curiosity. I don't. I find people here aren't curious enough. Um, there's this weird phenomenon that happens sometimes where if you stray onto a topic that people aren't familiar with, their eyes just glaze over, and and there's never so rarely do they go, oh, what's that? Tell me more about that. Or, you know, and it's not everywhere. It's not everyone. But there is an element of a a lack of curiosity about the wider world. Music, art, literature. That's why we don't get the independent films. And then people complain. Why why do we never get that movie? Because if we had gotten it, nobody would go see it. Because there's a lack of curiosity around here that I wish... I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to... It's culturally embedded, and it's frustrating. What question do you get asked most about Amarillo from outsiders? <laughs> uh, where's that? That is the big question. Like, I travel all the time, as you know. People don't know the t- Texas geography. But Texans don't know... I've had people 
um, when I moved to New York, I had people from Amarillo say, oh, that's great because you can just ride from Chicago on the bus and it'll only take an hour. Like people, they have no concept of where things are, you know. People can be forgiven for not knowing. But when you say the panhandle, they still don't know. So usually I don't say I'm from Amarillo or from Canyon, God knows, because I usually just say I live in a small town in West Texas. And that seems to conjure some kind of romanticism in people's imaginations because West Texas means something to people because of books and movies, I think, because of No Country for Old Men or, or uh, Hell or High Water or something. So if you say West Texas, people get it. If you say Amarillo, it, you might as well be saying Topeka. I like know. to tell people that we're we're closer to Colorado and New Mexico than we are to Austin or Denver, and, and that always gets gets their attention. What they I don't think of the, that. What I love is, what city is that near? And I say, well, it's, 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 it's the city. It's right? eight hours from Austin, six hours from Dallas, seven hours from Denver, four hours from uh, Albuquerque, and, and their heads just start to like explode. They're like, what? Especially people in the East where everything yeah. is like an hour's no, drive. Amarillo is the city that everything right, exactly, is near yeah. from people here. And then when you tell them it's 200,000 people, they're like, whoa, because that's like, that's bigger than like Boston proper, I think, is like 200,000 people, you know? It's a, it's a big city. What's your uh, your favorite local weekend activity? I'm a freelancer, so I don't have weekends. You know, like every day is kind of the same. I don't have a Monday through Friday gig. Um, I would say my ideal day here would just be to hole up at, you know, maybe in the back corner in Palace Coffee here in Canyon and just write for like on, on my book, which is like nothing brings me more pleasure than just writing my book and not having to work on other people's projects. So do that for like five hours and then maybe go get tacos at Torchies and Queso and then uh, go to a late movie or something, you know, but yeah. Okay, that's a good lead into the, the seventh question. What's your, your local go-to coffee shop? Well, I said Palace just now because I live in Canyon and I walk over there every day. But I'm friends with the Palace people. There's, of course, as you know, and as many people who are in the know know in Amarillo, there is a, a heated pitch There are sides you can take. Are you going to take a side? I, <laughs> I am not going to take a side between, between Evocation and Palace Coffee. I am only going to say that we here in the Texas Panhandle are blessed by the Lord baby Jesus with the best coffee in the United States of America. And I still believe that having been to Brooklyn and Los Angeles and other places and, uh, and what Patrick is doing and what Roman is doing, those guys and their equally talented wives who are, uh, I should have said, are like the brains behind the business are really like making each other better. And they're really pushing the other to like up their game. And we are all the beneficiaries of that rivalry. But I spend... Um, a lot of time in evocation. Um, and when I'm in Amarillo, I try to go over there because I want to be fair to both of them because I'm friends with both of them. But man, the coffee. I think it's the best thing that's going right now in Amarillo is, is, is the coffee. It's a real story. Okay, last question. When was the last time you wore cowboy boots? <laughs> it's been a long time. I'm not a cowboy boot guy. There are certain things that you can embrace around here. And then there are certain things that are maybe a bridge too far, like as a sort of creative person or writer or whatever and like I'm wearing a Pearl Snap shirt right now and I wear one almost every day and I listen to Towns Van Zant and I you know like I'm very West Texas in a lot of ways but I can't I can't do that I don't watch the Dallas Cowboys and I don't wear cowboy boots I wore them years ago my aunt is a, a romance novelist around here and she took a Jody Thomas Jody Thomas she's a New York Times bestseller and big time romance novelist and uh when I was like 20 years old, I took a horsemanship class with her and I bought a pair of boots at uh, Goodwill 
and I wore them out there. Uh, and on the second day, a girl was like kicked in the chest by a horse. And I was like, I don't need to do this. And so since then, I've kind of stayed away from horses and I don't wear cowboy boots. But but I like them. You know, I mean, I don't have any. I just uh, I don't think they look good on me or fit my personality, really. Baker, uh, I like to end each episode by asking the guest uh, for an endorsement of something local, whatever you want. So what would you like to endorse? I want to endorse the wind. I don't think that people appreciate the wind. I, I feel that will be a rare endorsement on this show, <laughs> but you go right ahead. Look, look, people, the wind is what we have. It's what makes us who we are. And, you know, it's like when I go to Chicago and people complain about the winter. I'm like, you're in Chicago. It's the thing you have. Like... Like we have the wind, we have the emptiness. I want to endorse the emptiness. Sometimes when I go into Amarillo, I get the sense that people are like trying to pretend like we don't live in a windy, empty place. And that's what lends it this sort of like unpanhandle-ish vibe sometimes. And I'm like, and that's why I live in Canyon because I still feel that sense here. And I'm like, let's let's go back to embracing the wind and the emptiness and, and try to... Um, you, you know, when you were a kid on the playground, uh, all West Texas people will know what I'm talking about. And the wind would really whip up and you would fall back and you sort of let the wind hold you up. You know, that's what I'm talking about is that sense of going, all right, wind. It's like sort of you and me, like th- that's how we should be with this place. You know, like we need to go back to embracing the sort of emptiness and the windiness of this place and let it blow through us. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get too florid and romantical here, but uh but yeah, I mean, I feel like it's missing. And, and, and I think that there's a way that we can appreciate all of the different types of people who live here and all of their, their unique, quirky, because that's what the wind does to us, right? You know, and that's what the emptiness does to us is it, it creates strange people. We all know them. And that's what's wonderful about this place. And uh, once we start turning our backs on them and turning our backs on the wind and the emptiness and sort of like turning inward, um, we're doing a disservice to this place and the people of the of the high plains. So that's what I would say is right. like let's let's not forget that we're flatlanders, and there's a reason that we feel at home out here in all this nothingness, and uh, we're all in this together, man. So that's what I would say. Jonathan Baker, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate hey, it. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, that was fun. And that concludes the episode. Hey, thank you for listening. Uh, You can look for a new episode of Hey Amarillo every Monday evening. Find more at heyamarillo.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Hey Amarillo. And uh, here's a good New Year's resolution. If, If you enjoy this podcast, resolve to leave a review about it on iTunes. That would be the best place. If you want to do it on the Facebook page, that's also good. If you want to just tell your friends about it, here's a great podcast to listen to in 2018. Uh, it's all about Amarillo and Amarillo people. I would love that too. Uh, I want to say thanks to Baker for appearing on the show. Uh, thanks to ROI Online for sponsoring this episode. And thank you again for listening. I really do appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to this new year. I'm Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>